The first thing you notice when you go on CNN's live coverage page for the Black Lives Matter movement is that it's no longer live. You'll notice an organized and concise thread filled with news articles, updates, and headlines that summarize the big events. And in the top right corner, there's a three-minute video called Brianna Taylor, What You Need to Know. The latest news update on the thread also stands out, not necessarily because of its content, as the story itself isn't exceptionally significant. It says an arson suspect, a white woman named Natalie White, was released on bond. She faces first-degree arson charges for setting Wendy's on fire during the protests that erupted after the police murdered Rayshard Brooks. However, what stands out is the fact that this update, the last update on this Black Lives Matter thread, was posted on the 24th of June. This last post, the last newsworthy mention on the CNN page, was made just under a month after George Floyd was brutally murdered in broad daylight. Go on this page and you'll find a civil rights movement reduced to 29 days worth of reporting. Although, obviously, we didn't expect it to still be live now, over six months after his death, I'll admit, I was a little thrown to see it couldn't even last a full calendar month. But like all news outlets, CNN can only tell us what we'll pay attention to, so when it decides a story is no longer relevant, it's often because we've already deemed it so. This summer, 2020 gave us one of the biggest civil rights demonstrations in recent memory that managed to permeate what seemed like every space, so much so that many of us were convinced that this would finally lead to long-lasting change. Our live coverage of the civil unrest around the US has ended for the evening, the page still reads. It doesn't say when it will resume. Brought to you by Beaver Sound. I'm Luis. And I'm Judah. And you're listening to We Know the End. Chapter 3. Well, um, the first thing, the first first difficulty is, is, is really... Um, so simple that it's usually overlooked. Last episode, we recalled lockdown and some of the stories that stemmed from being confined to the same place for months on end. This episode looks at the reignition of Black Lives Matter following the death of George Floyd. If we look back at this reignition that sparked over summer, it'd perhaps be easy to render 2020 as a year of education. Social media became information boards, citing reading lists and sources. We saw the movement permeate white spaces, individuals facing the responsibility of bringing active anti-racism into their homes and to their families and friends. Conversations about resource allocation, defunding the police, and decolonizing curriculums became part of our common discourse. And as so many of us define 2020 by chaos and unprecedented events, it'd be easy to reduce this summer to the beginnings or continuation of a wider educational journey extracted amidst the blended insanity of this year. But if you'd told me that in 2020, a black man would be murdered by the police in broad daylight, as a crowd of people watched, horrified, there would be public outcry, international condemnation, protests ablaze all around the world, I would have believed you. 
Nothing about these facts suggests anything unexpected, chaotic, or unprecedented enough to hint at the end of the world. For black people across the diaspora, the pain, grief, and injustice is far from new. All this stuff has been happening for years, and it got to a point where I've been seeing this stuff, and I used to get so angry at this stuff, and like the shootings and the police and all that kind of stuff. And now it's got to a point where I'm just numb to it now. So even when the George Floyd thing happened, I was like, man, obviously it sucks, but I was just like, it just becomes, it, it goes in and then it's just out again. I've been aware of the Black Lives Matter movement from when it first came about in like 2014, 13, I can't remember, like after Trayvon Martin and stuff like that, I remember that's when it started to actually become a thing. I was kind of like, oh, we're bringing this back, that's cool. Um, maybe more people can be aware of it this time around. At first, I was just like, oh, like, you guys are acting like this is brand new. And it's just like, if you read the bloody news or even tuned in, you would know that George Floyd's wasn't just like out of the blue. No, it's been continuing. And it's like, I can't believe this is still happening. It's just like, where have you been? Where, where have you been this entire time? I think I was probably blindly optimistic in being that this would like actually incite some sort of change and I sound very pessimistic here but and I, I do agree that like it did result in reigniting the movement but it was by no means a movement on its own. Um, to be a Negro to be a Negro in this country and to be um, relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage almost, almost all of the time, and in one's work. Rage. Although police brutality and racism aren't new tragedies we can credit to 2020's absurdity, we did see 2020 catalyze it. The movement reached unparalleled scale and sustained global attention that was enough to make even the most desensitised of us reinvigorated and enraged. When trying to think about what made this time and this death so consuming and significant, it becomes clear that the factor of a global pandemic may provide some explanation. Both Toby and Susan remember national lockdowns acting as an incubator, making time static and compelling the world to listen in a way that felt larger and more urgent than ones in the past. This whole lockdown put everything into perspective and it literally just forced people to concentrate because it's easy just to sort of, oh, well, another guy just died, carry on, I've got to go work. I don't know, I feel like this lockdown has, because everyone's at home and everyone's online, that's when people start to pay attention. Really taken aback about how widespread it was and how mobilising it was. And I had never seen the movement so overt before and so, like, magnified so much on the mainstream media. And, like, there were... And I think we could only appreciate that because the world was still... We were all in our houses. So we had to take notes of, you know, the people protesting and the campaigns and everyone talking about it and it trending. So I really thank God for that, that the coronavirus probably even um, helped the movement gain that traction because people were forced to see it. With this urgent cry for change, we saw what seemed like a world set alight. Watching the news looked like watching an apocalypse, with millions of people across the world attending protests, masked up against a pandemic. Armed police rendered soldiers, patrolling streets as though this was a time of war, and people, in any way they knew how, channeling their rage and outcry into something to promote change. Um, I did go to the Black Lives Matter um, protest in Norwich. My family back in the US were active in protests. I went to one of the protests 
being at the protest was good because people were just passionate. I think it was good that there were protests all over the world. I donated more money than I've given to charity in my life to like a bunch of organizations. I just felt like this incredible urge to like reach out and do something. I was still actively donating. I had conversations with my family and with friends. And also we have like the most horrible Tory MP who like we wrote petition, we wrote to. I took the time to to do my research and to find out, um, to educate myself. They read the book, um, why I don't, why I'm no longer speaking to white people about race. I've been looking at a lot of free uh, ebooks on the topic. There's one called The End of Policing. Um, I still was checking in on my friends, which is probably one of the most prominent parts. It was almost a necessity to challenge people's views on Black Lives Matter. Although now, research has confirmed that there is no evidence that the Black Lives Matter protests contributed to the spread of COVID. A global pandemic raised social distancing fears and made the rules surrounding lockdown a concern. You know, while I'd been really safe with COVID and I didn't want to go to see people, I felt really compelled to go to the protests that were happening in London by myself because I just felt so like incredibly emotionally frustrated with what was happening, uh, not just in America, but in the UK and in Australia as well. I was there at the protests and um, they were trying to um, follow social distance guidelines at a protest. <laughs> it's like, bro, what are you doing? There's thousands of people here. They was getting people not to stand up, to sit down. I was like, bro, what, what is this? Like, this is, you know, you know, trying to get people to distance. It just wasn't happening. There were quite a few people from my building who went to the protests in London and they felt like, it, you know, they had to go. I also felt like that, but I was also quite worried about the virus at that time. Although 93% of the demonstrations were peaceful, discussion disproportionately focused on violence, demonizing protesters as violent anarchists and looters. Through the clouds of smoke and tear gas, leaders declared states of emergencies and imposed curfews. People used the opportunity to like call the people who were protesting like hooligans or calling them, you know, terrorists. Like the, I think that the standout image for me, like uh, was Trump, um, like gassing a bunch of protesters to take the picture up in front of like a boarded up church holding a Bible upside down. And the whole like um, optics of it and just the imagery of it and all these white men in there with the cops and all that kind of stuff. I was like, is this a movie? And then obviously you got the looting and you've got all that kind of stuff. I didn't necessarily agree with uh, the way that events took place. So the level of violence. However, I did see the need of the movement to take place. I also understood that what we were seeing and the images that we're seeing were the ones that were most shocking and chosen by the media to, in order to talk about the movement. It's this time it just felt much more like um, it felt more of an emotional experience, you know, that I was really amazed by the way in which the, the protests like spread across all different countries. I mean, Black Lives Matter is like the biggest civil rights movement in the entire world as a result of those protests. For me at the time, I was just kind of like, I feel like these protests, the whole idea of them is a time for black people around the world to sort of collectively mourn this, like this really regretful action. When I think back to the time where we went to the two protests um, with the signs that we made at home, I just remember it feeling really overwhelmed, mm -hmm. not just by, of course, the amount of people that were there, especially after we just come out of lockdown, um, but also just 
I, I don't know, the, just the, this sense of awe and solidarity and community that there was in seeing all of these people come together. Um, yeah, it really was that. Like when I think back, I remember um, like all the speeches. I remember there was that girl who must have been oh about 14 God, yeah. um, and just like the really emotional story she was sharing. And it really just felt like a place of community. And it was really weird, obviously, because like everyone had their masks on and <laughs> there was like free hand sanitizer and you were always kind of oh, like when someone came up close to you, you were like, Back don't up. touch me. Um, but yeah, like and overall, it was just such a cathartic experience because when I think of this time, whenever we have this like reignition of discussing racism and things like that, um, it's always just so emotionally exhausting. Um, and it's like a myriad of different emotions, right? So obviously you've got like your sad and like the grief and the pain of like all of this. But for me anyway, I just really feel an overwhelming sense of anger um, and just kind of being constantly angry at like the scale of this injustice and the idea that like it's always happening and like how do we fix it and that kind of negative spiral. And the fact that we were in a pandemic and lockdown confined to the spaces of our homes certainly didn't help at that all. sort of heightened level of emotion and anger mm -hmm. and i just remember like how emotionally draining like the nature of these conversations are anyway because like whenever racism becomes something that's being talked about um in the mainstream media like it's always just very triggering to just see like really horrible views um, and it's just so self-destructive and unhealthy um to feed and harbor emotions like extreme anger for so long um, and it makes you obviously you want to zone out and like um, set back and not be involved but then you have that tension of knowing that oh this may be your only opportunity to engage in this conversation for a while like it's not often that racism has exclusive attention and that like this is something everyone's ready to hear and so like you feel this pressure to like oh my goodness like I can't tune out like this is my moment like I have to be in it right now um, and it's just obviously it shouldn't be like that at all and the weight of these conversations shouldn't lie on individual acts of injustice against individuals um, and it shouldn't be that it takes events like these for these conversations to be um in the mainstream media but that's just where we find ourselves i think it was that's why i think it was really healthy going to those protests mm -hmm. and such a cathartic experience mm -hmm. um do you remember your favorite protest signs my favorite sign <laughs> Um, oh, I remember one. It was um, this girl and she had like a pack of straws stuck oh to God. the back of her protest sign. And it said, if you're a racist, feel free to take a straw and suck your mum. I think that was my personal favourite. <gasps> suck your mum. It was a time of just trauma for black people because we saw that stuff every day. Like, I remember waking up and seeing that George Floyd video and I was thinking like, not again, I like my heart cannot take it anymore. Unlike white people, we are not allowed to be, to dissociate, we are not allowed to separate ourselves from that. Like when we see a black dead body, we, we personalize it. Like we can't separate ourselves from that. And so I knew personally that I needed to take a break from that. It was like emotionally draining, obviously, I having to like find out that another innocent person has been killed by the police is obviously very distressing but I feel like because of social media um, we get constant bad news all the time so I think it has had a psychological effect on us and kind of desensitized us to bad news sometimes but this one was like really heavy because when is it going to stop when when will things just be okay it's just so draining to know that like you know um I don't know how to explain to you that you should care about other human beings and I feel like we don't know how to explain to you that you should care about like you know poor children we don't know how, how to explain to you you should care about homeless people like you know what I mean like you should just care because they're human beings it's it's not that hard so
Well, part of the rage is this. It isn't only what is happening to you, but it's what's happening all around you and all of the time. All of the time. As the attention to police brutality became inescapable, it became clear that racial accountability exists unbound by time or place. The blows are constant, hidden in the depths of our pasts, howling at us in the present, awaiting confrontation in our future. When talking to Adoma, she tells us about how a large part of the movement became about looking back. Last year, she found herself protesting at Yale after a campus police officer had shot an unarmed black couple. She tells us how, although away in her home in Ghana when the movement reignited, her activism was not tethered to the physical boundaries of America. These are things that that stay with me, and I, I don't think there was a way for me to not engage with the movement, in addition to me being a Black woman, I have to say that. Um, I had been at those protests last year for um, following the shooting um, by the Yale police officer. There was, like, mutual aid um, actions, and, and the per- okay, I, I probably have to say the person who was shot survived. Um, but they were, however, in a coma, and they had um, really enormous hospital bills. Um, and the Yale community and the general New Haven community mobilized to raise money for hospital bills, um, just trying to call to an end to the Yale Police Department, which really shouldn't exist. And the fight for justice is never a one-time thing. And even if you're not present physically, There are ways to be present virtually. There are ways to continue the conversation. There are ways for you to not let the movement go to the back burner. Um, Luz and I went to school in Senegal at the international school called the International School of Dakar. On June 15th, a student at her former high school, ISD, the International School of Dakar, created an Instagram called Black at ISD. It's an anonymous page where Black students, parents and teachers, past and present, can share their experiences of racism and prejudice at the school. In centering these stories, it hopes that it can lead to institutional change and ensure accountability. Um, and it's a pretty, there's a pretty mixed uh, student body, I'd say. Um, and while I went there as a pretty young middle schooler, I there's not very much I remember as a concrete form of, of my understandings of, of microaggressions and, and direct racial discrimination. Pages like Black ISD were really means of, I think, encouraging me and other people who had gone to ISD to think critically about our time there and how a lot of our relationships, a lot of the interactions we had were not always as beneficial and, and politically correct, for lack of a better term, than we thought it was, they were. At first, I was surprised, um, and then after some critical reflection and speaking with my mom, who was, you know, obviously more aware of these things, a lot of the pieces sort of fell into place, and you can see, like, oh, that was a very clear example of a microaggression, or, oh, that was totally not okay, and if had I been my age, or just had I been more conscious of, of those sorts of sorts of actions, then that would have totally been a major red flag in my head. And in 2020, we saw this critical thinking, unbound by time and place, finally find its footing in the UK. The summer, after years of piecemeal action, we saw the movement transcend the American context. 
bringing racial accountability to a place in which it was long overdue. During the other times where people, um, I guess, got murdered in America, like we never brought it to us and started evaluating our own um, cases, um, our own like people who died in the police. It's it's different, but it's also the same. It's it's institutional. It is entrenched, and it may not be on the same degree, but it's still something that affects the everyday lives of Black people. British people generally have a um, are very comfortable saying, "Oh, but it's worse in America." or it's worse somewhere else and we won't look in the mirror and think oh actually we have a lot of issues that we still need to address here. The UK isn't innocent. People especially here need to stop uh, like hiding behind their screens of ignorance and and start opening their eyes about these things. The fact that it's so uh, so much less obvious in the UK means that yeah, people don't understand it and they think that it's, um, it just doesn't exist. And I remember seeing a, a poll about how racist people in the UK think that the UK is. And like, I saw, so there was a category of like, not racist, quite racist, fairly racist, very racist, racist. And like seven, seven I'll say like 60% of people voted like for, from, quite racist to like racist and I was like guys like how can you be comfortable saying yeah the UK is quite racist like clearly there is a conversation to be had clearly um, there are issues that white people are seeing which they don't want to address. In the face of the most extraordinary and criminal indifference, indifference of most white people in this country and their ignorance Ignorance. In a year where our entire lives became virtual, it should come as no surprise that social media became the platform that education, protests, and outcry took place. While we were all at home, our social media feeds became pits of endless information and activism. Explore pages and timelines became filled with organizations to donate to and causes to support. The hypocrisy of the All Lives Matter rhetoric was explained through metaphors of burning houses in a way even children could understand. Twitter became an archive of public unrest, filled with tear-gas-riddled videos of live protests. As the movement gained traction through our phone screens, we saw the power of social media, both for better and for worse. I kind of saw the power of social media um, in that time because we were calling brands to account. We were calling businesses to account. We were, firms were having conversations, like influencers were being held to account, like you profit off of, you know, black pop culture, but, you're, but you don't support black movements and you don't support black people. So yeah, I just loved how um, social media was used as like a political tool and a political weapon. While on social media, I, I like, I would reshare stuff, but I tended to just sit back and listen rather than like saying something myself because I just didn't really know what to say. More people were willing to talk about it, like people who would normally shy away from politics, like for example, influencers or IG models and stuff like that. They're the type of people who like to be impartial because obviously they want to alienate their audience. It was good. It was good seeing, you know, obviously support and stuff. But then I think maybe I'm so jaded to the point where I'm like, how much of this is like, genuine because social media we do like to sort of portray one thing or we just like to join in in topics that we really don't really know much about or care about a lot of things on social media is very performative 
And that's where I was looking at it like, hmm, like, this is cool. It's nice having all the support, but how long are we going to do in like three months or whatever? This is like, this is the big thing right now. And everyone's on it. And I guess on one hand, it's good. It brings awareness to it. But how do we really care? So it was, it was nuts. We saw performative activism reach new heights. We saw hypocritical and counterproductive posts, the dissemination of misinformation, to the point where the lines between what was genuine and what wasn't became heavily blurred. At times, it did more harm than good. The underlying question for me came up is like, is a movement like this sustainable with performative allyship? Um, And also, are these conversations being had with people's best interests in, in, in heart? Or is it really just because everybody's doing it and everyone can see that you're doing it because it's on Instagram? So I was like annoyed at first a lot when people just basically just coming up with slogan and kind of just like showing face. These stupid trends like, oh, the Black Square Tuesday. Like posting a black square and posting an infographic and all these other things that seemed to be not actually addressing the root of the issue. People talk about performative activism all the time, but like it was really evident in in that time period. And you just had companies issuing very vague statements about how they stand in support with Black Lives Matter, but still, you know, being their companies being founded on slavery or colonialism or other things like that. You kind of skew who is genuine, who is not, and you're giving accolades to someone for speaking out, but not actually. You don't know if they actually agree with you or if they're on your side or if they actually do want to do something about it. So while I think it was a great way for people to learn about these issues and actually listen to Black voices, which is something that hasn't been happening for years, if people aren't going to like follow it up and engage and, and actually put their money where their mouth is, I think that's where this sort of, this form of activism really falls short. Amidst the pain and grief, this presence of performatism became yet another source of anger. Alia and Susan describe it as a vicious cycle, remembering the frustration of not being able to trust everyone who claimed to care. And then there was also this thing where you had to be like, really like, you couldn't say it and be like, I don't trust you and I don't trust the way you're coming across because like, I don't trust you posting about Black Lives Matter. I don't trust you going to protests. I don't think you're being genuine. I feel like you're just there to show face, there to be like, yeah, I was part of the movement, so you can't um, drag me on Twitter. But if you say that, everyone's be like, oh, you're always angry about everything. What do you want people to do, blah, blah. So it's like you couldn't say it. And then on top of that, you're questioning yourself and be like, am I being negative? Am I being pessimistic? I went to a very uh, white grammar school in Essex. So a lot of my like old school mates were like still following me and stuff. And I got so many messages from things I was putting on my story from them. And they were like, yeah, like we support you, blah, blah, blah. But then some people were like, yeah, I've posted this on my story. And I'm thinking, do you want me to clap for you? Do you want me to to give you a certificate. And it got to a point where I was just like, I'm just gonna unfollow these people. Like, I'd get annoyed when they don't post something. Then when they do post something, I think, performative. It was very, oh, I was just very angry and very just 
venomous, which is not, which is which is not good, and is not something that I wanted to project. Which is why I had to take some time off of social media because I don't want to like. I don't know. I can't tell people how to campaign. I can't tell people how to use their platform. Um, all I can do is influence the people that I have um, influence over, and I don't want that to be affected by what I'm what I'm seeing other people's content be about or what I'm seeing other people do. Since this is so, no, it, it's very it's a great temptation to um, to simplify the issues. Under the illusion that if you simplify them enough, people will recognize them. I think this illusion is very dangerous because, in fact, it isn't the way it works. You know, a simple thing cannot be, a complex thing can be made simple. You simply have to try to deal with it in all its complexity and hope to get that complexity across. Complexity. If 2020 is a year defined by chaos, a year of dismantling and challenging our understandings of the status quo, a year that uprooted our entire lives, then perhaps it's worth considering whether it could be a year of change. If 2020 has taught us to expect the unexpected, is change something that we dare allow ourselves to believe in? The complexity of all of this often leaves us feeling like we're powerless. But if this year's rendition of Black Lives Matter was so heavily focused on education, on unwinding that feeling of helplessness and turning it into tangible tools and outcomes, Perhaps solutions don't have to be so far out of reach. I think that, that that was a lasting thing and that will have a lasting impact. I think the change, the like mental change and the social change that that movement has brought and continues to bring, um, I definitely think that'll have a lasting impact. But, you know, it's not like the work is done. I appreciate, like, you know, this whole movement because it made me realise that people are just learning about just like you know the life of black people like you know the injustices we face even though you know it took a while <laughs> to get people to understand like at least people are trying to understand and people are trying to educate themselves obviously everything that happened was so uh awful but to see to see that civil unrest and uh the way it galvanized the population in america and in britain and across the world you know um was such an amazing and powerful thing to see um you know how like the the black pound day and the whole support black businesses i'm really grateful that it came back into the spotlight it was another movement but i don't like the fact it's a trend because it needs to be a lifestyle it needs to be a a thing that we do a given that we support them but yeah i was really um, happy to see so many that black businesses and black brands gain the recognition that they so do deserve so as a consumer it really made me think about my buying power and to take autonomy in where i put my money i think it was one for the history books i think that we'll be reading about in 20 years but it's hard for individuals to take on entire institutions susan shares how proactive solutions aren't always met with open arms girls from our old school we tried to kind of just have conversations with our secondary school about some of the subliminal and underlying problems that were with the staffing body and the pastoral team and um we revisited the conversation i had with her teacher about the fact that there were like no black teachers no black staff and how that and in most importantly no black pastoral team meaning that the woes of the few black students were going unheard because they literally did not feel represented so we presented that to them they did not react well at all they saw it as an attack it was 
really, really shocking, I would say, and very, very disappointing. But I was happy to be part of that, I would say, and just start invoking those conversations. Like, no, like, we are going to talk about this, whether you try and shut it down. This is the experience of the Black students that went here. You will listen to it, even if you don't agree with it. With so much of the conversation being dominated and centred on institutional reform, the downside of education became apparent, and of what happens when complex issues are rendered simple talking points. Adoma and Alia explore how intricate discussions became lost in colloquial translation. How it's discussed on social media platforms like Instagram and TikTok. We have words like ACAB and defund the police, which are rapidly becoming buzzwords. So to me, when I see people using these words and it's just a buzzword, it's just to be like, look, I'm with you, haha, without actually really engaging with what these end games are. Like, you're just saying it because it's cool to say it. Um, a lot of people would say, defund the police, defund, defund. But then you don't even understand what defunding entails. And that sort of reflects people not really going to look at those resources and, and then be, and critically analyze for themselves what it means to defund the police what it means to imagine a future um, where black and brown voices are being heard and dismantling the systems of structural violence that are in place. I think that there has been, if you, if you know the right resources to look at, you can find that information. However, I don't think a lot of people know exactly where those resources are. And it's very easy to see defunding the police as something that would just be like, you know, inviting anarchy. And it really represents like a surface level understanding of what the police actually represent, the role that they play, play in black and brown communities, and what a reimagined future um, would look like. Alia goes on to describe the frustration of seeing the misuse of certain terms by white protesters and talks about why this is so dangerous to solutions regarding race and policing. And then they'll just say this really weird stuff like, yeah, we need to go kill all the police. It's just like, yeah, you can say that because you live in the suburbs. You're not terrorized every day by the police. Like, I remember during the uprising of like Black Lives Matter and stuff, like my brothers, for example, were stopped by the police like twice. And that really like, really angered me because it's like Alia has two 18 year old twin brothers Corey and Trey the first incident she describes is when one of them was sat on the back of the bus and the police came on to question him and the other black boy sat near him and I guess the stereotype in London is that if you sit at the back of the bus you're a road man and like I said about my brothers like these boys are sensible like in school just and then going to work now and stuff like that like they're just like they like to play Xbox you know they're just those kind of boys. They were just sat near each other. And I guess the police saw them and then came on the bus and was just like to him, basically like trying to stop and search him and all of that. And he was just asking like, you know, like, why? Like, what did I do? Like, why are you doing this to me? Like, I'm really confused. And then they were just being really aggressive to him. Like, put your hands up. And he was just like, what the hell? So that was the first instance. A few weeks later, Corey and Trey were again harassed by the police, this time with their younger sister, Maya, a 17-year-old. They'd called an Uber to return home after visiting Alia. However, unknown to all, the driver was also being racially profiled by the police, who hadn't realised it was an Uber, and so were following him. So as soon as they already came inside the Uber, it's like, oh, it's a car full of black people. And so they stopped him, and then they were asking questions. And there was two 
police cars behind this car. And this is one man. Why do you need two cars for one car? And especially one person in that car. And it was just evident that they were just targeting because he was black. But all he was doing was like his job. You know, he's just driving in London. But obviously when you're driving while black, shit like this always happens. So. so the fact that you're so confident to say, kill all the police. Yeah, when I see a police, I'm going to shoot him on sight. It's like, yeah, you can say that because it's not your reality. You don't have to live through the tension of um, one, like hating the police, distrusting the police, but also having to rely on the police if something bad happens to you. The tension of having to rely on an institution that also actively acts as a detrimental threat is also explored by Dylan, who tells us about his girlfriend's father, a black police officer. I mean, she lives in a part of London that for a lot of um, young black people, Going into crime is a pretty much a given, and like it's pretty much the only way out. And it's re- actually it's really difficult to avoid it. And one of the only ways that you can avoid it is actually to become a police officer, you know. And yeah, so and her dad grew up in the same area, didn't do super well in school. He's like a big, tall, strong guy. He wanted to become a. He decided he's going to become a police officer. You know, it's an. It must be an interesting feeling, I think, to be put in that situation where that is kind of set out for you to go to. And you kind of have to join um, like up with the people that seem to be oppressing you the most. It's not hard to see that, in erasing the complexity of these issues, education can be rendered useless in the face of meaningful change. For instance, when we think about history and think about how the past translates to stories we remember in the present, we see the consequences of the simplification. We see the lines between fact and fiction blurred, and history sometimes misrepresented and lost in the translation of time. Somehow, it took 2020 in all its urgency to finally verbalise this erasure that had been neglected and silenced for years. We saw reignited discourse surrounding the language and symbols we used to exalt our past, from the renaming of streets to the removing of statues. On June 7th, demonstrators in Bristol pulled down the statue of Edward Colston, a 17th century slave trader, a statue that had been at the heart of controversy for over 30 years. A statue that, after being fished out of the Bristol Harbour, will now be placed in a museum, still bearing the graffiti and ropes that were used to tear it down, in an effort to tell a just and truthful history in all of its complexity. This is definitely something that I think about a lot. I'm also very into art as well and the role of art and, you know, uh, how art is used to um, glorify and romanticise our history um, or whether it should be used as an educational tool. So I think often people will will use history to, to, to conflate to conflate facts and I know that might sound very um like paradoxical but I think lots of people will say you know um oh we can't like if we destroy one statue like where do we stop where's the line you know like how where is the line between glorifying history and um being truthful and and not obscuring anything you know and I think it is a very uh dangerous line to tread but I think that things need to change. Britain is a very conservative country uh, and we will always stick with the status quo over, you know, meaningful change. And it's in this complexity that we see that, just as history is sometimes erased in the name of art and glory, art can also preserve it. Within art can lie the truths of black pain and trauma that is often overlooked. The really important role of like arts and culture in being a sort of like tool for resistance throughout these whole things. So much reggae music that was made in the UK as well is, incre- is 
been dealing with the issue of police brutality for like 40 years. Notting Hill Carnival was created to like show support against police brutality and unjust policing. I'm amazed at the ability of black creatives around the world to transform like all of this collective trauma and suffering into probably the most valuable revolutionary tools that are at their capability. In 1961, James Baldwin, a novelist and activist, was part of a panel on black perceptions of the American setting in art, mainly literature and drama. When he was asked about the polarity of being black and a writer, asked about how he was able to take his trauma and transform it into one of the most powerful revolutionary tools at his capability, this is what he said. Well, um, the first thing, the first, the first difficulty is, is, is really... Um, so simple it's usually overlooked. Um, to be a Negro, to be a Negro in this country, and to be um, relatively conscious, is to be in a state of rage, almost, almost all of the time. And in one's work, and part of the rage is this: it isn't only what is happening to you, but it's what's happening all around you and all of the time, in the face of the most extraordinary and criminal indifference, the indifference of most white people in this country and their ignorance. Now, since this is so, you know, it, it's, very, it's a great temptation to, um, to simplify the issues under the illusion that if you simplify them enough, people will recognize them. I think this illusion is very dangerous because, in fact, it isn't the way it works. You know, a simple thing cannot be, a complex thing can be made simple. You simply have to try to deal with it in all its complexity and hope to get that complexity across. Somehow, even after the events of the summer, after burning streets, toppled statues, screams for justice, we find ourselves here, summarized in month-long news threads and having the same conversations again and again. These conversations that wane through time, reducing this movement to tangible moments too many people simply look back on and claim to carry with them, but at a lowered frequency, as though there is no choice but to move on and hope things change. And somehow, it's this quote, 59 years later, that I come back to. In an attempt to find meaning in these traumatic experiences, it's these words that put it all into perspective. It's that rage happening all of the time, the criminal indifference, the overwhelming complexity that define our stories in this movement. My only hope is that we can take something useful out of 2020 and use the lessons we've learned to bring us to a time where the words of a man first uttered almost 60 years ago no longer so accurately describe our present reality that they're the only way I can make any sense of it all. Thanks for listening. Hope you join us next week. We Know the End is presented, produced, and edited by us and brought to you by Beaver Sound. Intro music by Vagar Dreyer and outro music by Brooklyn Han. Logo designed by Ellie Reeves. Music contributions from Free Music Archive, featuring Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. A special thanks to Adoma Ado, Alice Norga, Alia Mormon, Charlotte Lynch, Dylan Stevens, Ellie Reeves, Felipe Campos Ferreira, Grace Chapman, Isabella Abbott, Lucy Knight, Mayen Chow, 
Shemi Laure Alujami, Susan Odele, and Toby Abraham Silas for sharing their lovely stories. <laughs>